Chapter 17 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. Edited by Walter Wood, Chapter 17, The Hooded Man. On the night of Wednesday, October 9th, 1912, Inspector Arthur Walls, an old and well-known member of the Eastbourne Borough Police, was shot dead by a man who was known as John Williams, and also because of the steps that were taken to prevent mistaken identity as the hooded man. The murder was of a very cruel and deliberate nature, but in spite of this fact, a great deal of sympathy for the prisoner was aroused. Before he was hanged, however, it was realized that this sympathy was entirely misplaced and that a hardened criminal had been most justly condemned. This crime, this story of which is told by Chief Detective Inspector Leonard Parker of the Eastbourne Borough Police, who was associated with the case from start to finish, forcibly illustrates the peril to which the police are constantly exposed in dealing with dangerous characters. If, first of all, we go to South Cliff Avenue, we can see the house which, in October 1912, was occupied by a Hungarian lady named the Countess Stary and from the doorway canopy of which the young man who had assumed the name of John Williams fired two revolver shots at Inspector Walls, one of which killed him almost instantly. Walls was an uncommonly fine man physically, and he was a universal favorite. We all felt his loss deeply, myself particularly, for we had been colleagues many years having been in the East Sussex Constabulary stationed at Eastbourne and being transferred to the Eastbourne Borough Police Force on the formation of that body in 1891. Walls was known as a parade inspector and much of his duty was done on the front and in the beautiful and extensive gardens which are such a famous feature of Eastbourne. Southcliff Avenue is steep and short and leads to a seafront from which the house can be reached in a few moments. On the day of the murder, I had seen Walls at the town hall at my office. He had left me laughingly and was his own fine cheerful self. When next I saw him, he was lying dead on a stretcher and all that was then known as to the manner of his death was that it had been caused by a revolver fired by a man who had vanished in the darkness and of whom the only description was that he was hatless and the only clue to his identity was a trilby hat which he was supposed to have left behind him in his flight here is the house later we will go and look at other places which are connected with the crime which without much difficulty we shall be able to reconstruct over the doorway is a wooden canopy or coping it was covered over now with sloping glass 
which is just long and wide enough to allow a man to lie down or crouch upon it, and which at that time could be reached by an active man clambering up the spout at the side of the doorway. On this October night, Williams, who for reasons of his own wanted to get into the house, had climbed on to the canopy and he was hiding here in the darkness at about seven o'clock. The countess was dining out and probably he knew of this and had laid his plans accordingly. From his hiding place, it would have been an easy matter for him to enter the countess's dressing room and carry out whatever purpose he had in mind. A brougham drove up to the house, and into this the countess and the lady friend got, and were driven off towards a hotel. But it had happened that the coachman, Daniel Potter, had seen the crouching figure on the canopy. He made no sign of his discovery, but after driving away a short distance, he stopped and told the countess what he had seen. She directed him to return to the house, which she entered, and at once telephoned to the police station, urgently asking for help, as a man who was supposed to be a burglar was crouching on the canopy. The message was repeated, with the request that a constable should be dispatched on a bicycle. The town hall is some distance from the avenue, and as Inspector Walls was on duty on the parade and near at hand, he was rung up and told of the Countess's appeal for help. Walls instantly hurried to Southcliff Avenue, and ten minutes after the first message was received, he was standing only a few feet away from the man who was lying on the canopy. There is a little garden at the front of the house with a short pathway, and Walls had entered the gate, so that he should be ready to receive the man when he came down, as he was expected to do. Waltz looked up in the darkness, and, being so close to the burglar, he must have seen him pretty clearly, and undoubtedly the burglar had a very clear view of the fine figure which was just below him. "'Now then, my man,' said Waltz, "'just you come down.' That was all. There was no threat or anything of that sort about it. There was just a plain request from a police inspector to a man who was found in a very suspicious situation to give himself up. The man on the canopy said nothing. He settled himself deliberately on his little flat platform, rested a loaded revolver which he carried so that he could take careful aim, and then fired at the big figure which was only a few feet away. There was a flash and a sharp report, and poor Walls was shot. Whether it was the first bullet or the second, which was fired that killed the inspector, is not known. But at any rate, he managed to reach the doorway, and even then he tried to warn the terrified women inside to close the door and so protect themselves. Then he left the doorway and was again a defenseless target for the crouching murderer. A second shot was fired and struck the inspector. The whole of the firing took place in a few seconds, so that even if the first bullet was fatal, there was, according to the medical opinion, just time for Walls to stagger to the doorway and warn the women, for he was a man of uncommonly fine physique 
and perfectly healthy. Walls fell dead in the roadway, and instantly the murderer got down from the canopy and fled. At that time the avenue was very quiet. The first shot had made the horse restive, and the coachman had been forced to drive him off up the avenue. But a parlor-maid on the opposite side of the avenue had been alarmed, and she and a man who was passing hurried up, and the two attended to the fallen inspector. The alarm spread quickly. The chief constable, Major E.J.J. Teal, who was at dinner not far from the avenue, hurried to the house, and at once took every possible step to trace the vanished murderer. There is now in force an arrangement by which, in case help is needed from Scotland Yard, it can be had, if asked for, in such cases as this, and, after many preliminary inquiries had been made and a good deal of information secured, I telephoned, in the presence of the chief constable to the yard. I said, one of our inspectors has been shot dead by a burglar, but the only description we can give is that he was a man without a hat. The help of an experienced officer was requested, and next morning, by the first train, Chief Detective Inspector Bower and Detective Sergeant Heyman arrived at Eastbourne from the yard, and I met them. After a short conference, we started off without delay to the house, securing statements from the Countess and her lady friend and making many other inquiries which proved of a very great value. I may say here that in the end no fewer than 49 witnesses were called for the Crown, their evidence involving an enormous amount of patient, preliminary inquiry and hard work. Amongst the first of the important facts to be discovered was that on the afternoon of the day of the murder, a man and a young woman had been seen in Southcliffe Avenue. The woman remained at the top while the man apparently was making himself familiar with the avenue and the arrangement of the houses. Undoubtedly this man was Williams and the woman was Florence Seymour, her name, like his, being an assumed one. At that time, as developments proved, Williams was prepared in every way for the burglarous entry of the Countess's house. Events now moved rapidly. There came upon the scene a young man named Edgar Power, who had been a medical student and lived at Haringey. He had known Williams for two or three months and was also acquainted with Florence Seymour and Williams' brother. To this brother from Eastbourne, Williams, after the murder, sent a letter card saying, If you would save my life, come here at once. Come to Four Tideswell Road. Bring some money with you. Urgent, urgent. In consequence of what he'd learned, Power came to Eastbourne and called on Major Teal and said his name was well known in the medical profession and he felt that whatever he said would be treated with discretion. And he told Major Teal that the brother and Florence Seymour were going to London by the 745 train that night. Chief Inspector Bower, I, and Sergeant Heyman decided to go by the same train. 
taking power with us, so that we could keep the brother and the young woman under observation. We traveled in a compartment by ourselves, having seen that the pair had entered another part of the train. It was reasonable to assume that they would join Williams, and our plan was to see him and invite him to give an explanation of his movements at the time of the murder. But subsequently, on the strength of information which was in our possession, we resolved to arrest him and charge him with the murder. It was a densely foggy night, and when we reached Victoria Station, we had the greatest difficulty in making anything out with certainty, but we saw the brother and the young woman and saw that they took the only taxi that was available and drove off. They quickly disappeared in the fog, leaving us quite helpless for that night at any rate. But Williams's haunts were known to power, and it was arranged that next morning we should visit some of them in the hope of meeting the man we wanted to get. Accordingly, we went to various places but had no luck until lunchtime, when we entered the buffet at Moorgate Street Metropolitan Railway Station. It was about a quarter past one o'clock, and there were a good many people in the place, amongst them Williams, who was at the bar drinking. Power joined him and engaged him in talk. Inspector Bower and I did not hesitate a moment. We just rushed up and collared Williams, put a word or two in his ear, and at the same time made a pretense of arresting Power. There was a tremendous commotion, of course, but we got Williams into a taxi and took him to Cannon Row Police Station. On the way, Williams said, I'm perfectly innocent of this. I wouldn't do such a thing. Bower asked him if he would care to say anything about his movements on the Wednesday evening, but Williams replied, I say nothing. Soon afterward, he said, Whoever did that did it to get the Countess's papers for political purposes. That's what I think anyway. No doubt she's mixed up in some political business. At the police station, power was released, and I formally charged Williams with the murder of Inspector Walls. His only answer then was, very well, and he was locked up for the time being. On the following day, Saturday, when we were driving to Victoria Station, Williams said, If you inquire at Eastbourne Station, you'll find that I went there to catch a train just after five o'clock on Thursday. I just missed it and got one twenty minutes afterwards. I paid excess fare on the third-class ticket. It was a big chap, the collector. He must remember. On other occasions, Williams made statements which left no doubt whatever that he was at Eastbourne at the time of the murder, and it became less and less difficult to establish his direct association with the crime. At the time of the arrest, none of us had any idea who this man was that we had in custody, and we knew nothing whatever about his past. All we had to go upon was the word of power, but very soon we began to learn something of William's antecedents, for in reply to a message sent to Scotland Yard, an officer from the fingerprint department visited Cannon Row and took the f prisoner's fingerprints. 
A very short time after that had been done, this officer, who had gone back to the yard to make inquiries, returned with two or three photographs which showed the sort of man we had got, and showed that he was a very well-known, skillful, and dangerous burglar. This revelation strengthened our arm a great deal, as it was pretty certain that the object of the man who was hiding on the canopy was burglary. Having been kept at Cannon Row for the night, we took Williams to Eastbourne on the following day. He was securely handcuffed, and when we got to the end of our journey, Inspector Bower made a suggestion which caused the prisoner to be known as the Hooded Man, and doubtless increased the enormous public interest which was shown in the case. In affairs like this, the question of identification is, of course, of the most vital importance, and there are always excitable people who are wanting to come forward and make statements. The police were particularly anxious that there should be no unfairness done to the prisoner, and so it was that Inspector Bauer suggested that his face and head should be completely covered. This was done by putting over him a blue apron with spots, and when we reached Eastbourne Station, it was impossible for anyone to see his face, nor was it publicly seen until he was brought up in due course at the police court. There was an enormous crowd of people in the neighborhood of the station, and a great many photographers, but no photograph was taken of Williams's face and the chief constable issued strict orders against any photographing in court. By means of these precautions, which were adopted time after time, there was no possibility of unfair identification. From the very beginning, this case excited uncommon public interest, and a very large numbers of people were unable to get into the police court to hear the preliminary proceedings. Amongst the visitors were many ladies, some of whom brought lunch with them, so that they should not have to lose time in getting refreshments outside. I must go back a little to the time just after the arrest to tell of what happened then. When Williams was in custody, Heyman went to Victoria Station to get the luggage, and Bower and I went to Scotland Yard where we decided to go to Victoria and see if we could find out anything of the movements of Florence Seymour. We got a taxi, and on the journey, while we were looking out of the window, I spotted her. We stopped the taxi, jumped out, and followed her as she was going into a tea shop. Just as she was entering the doorway, Bower spoke to her, and, though she was quite taken aback, she stared steadily and tried to bluff it through. But he persuaded her to accompany us to the yard. She there made a statement which proved to be quite untrue. For one thing, she declared that she had not been in the neighborhood of the crime, though very soon after his arrest, Williams had declared that at the time of the murder, she and he were at a picture palace performance in Eastbourne. Subsequently, she made other statements, which varied a great deal, and several of which she withdrew, alleging that they had been obtained under pressure, which was not the case. 
From time to time Williams volunteered statements as to his doings, and some of these were very significant. On the way to Eastbourne, he asked us if we thought, supposing that he had done such a thing as the murder, he would have left Eastbourne quite openly, knowing full well that the station would be closely watched. He declared that he was wearing a frock coat and a silk hat at Eastbourne, and asked if he would have had the cheek to lie on that small piece of board while the countess was dressing for dinner. Wouldn't it have been easier, he went on, to watch the lights go down and the lady leave and then go in? As a matter of fact, Williams had been wearing a frock coat and silk hat at Eastbourne on the day of the murder, but he had changed these for a lounge suit and a trilby hat before leaving his lodgings in Tideswell Road to go to South Clift Avenue. During the journey, he had also declared that he went to a picture palace with his wife and saw Dante, and that a man sang at the performance, but he did not remember his name. On the very morning after the murder, an important discovery was made on the parade, not far from the scene of the murder, by a corporation employee. While walking along, he saw, lying on the seawall, a long new rope, and on picking it up and examining it, he found that there was a strong hook at one end. He took his find to the police station, and there was little difficulty in assuming that this was just the sort of thing a burglar would use in helping him to climb to such a height as the canopy. He would throw the hook end up, and when it caught something and became secure, he would climb up it. Before very long, we knew that Williams was an expert climber, that he had been to sea for a time, and that his special ability in this respect had earned for him the nickname of the monkey. Well, that rope was found in the immediate neighborhood of the murder, and it became one of the many important links which were forged from time to time during the long period in which Williams was brought on various occasions before the magistrates and finally committed for trial on the capital charge. The evidence, it is true, was circumstantial, but it was of the strongest possible nature. Very soon after the discovery of the rope, there was found a revolver which was proved to be Williams's, and with which undoubtedly the murder was committed. Powers and Florence Seymour had returned to Eastbourne, and he had heard from her about the revolver. In the course of a walk, she showed him where the weapon was. It was buried in the shingle on the beach, just by the Redoubt Gardens. Two young officers from Scotland Yard had the pair under observation, and they made a careful note of the spot where the revolver had been buried. To that place, late at night, we went in a taxi, and having stopped it some distance away, we went to the Redoubt Gardens, and after hard digging in the shingle with a shovel, we came across the revolver which was in two pieces. It had been buried about a mile from South Cliff Avenue. Careful tests by experts showed that the bullets which had been fired at walls were just such as could be discharged from the revolver, and there was not a vestige of doubt that the weapon belonged to Williams.
A significant circumstance which came out was that when Williams and Power met, Power chafed him about his inability to shoot. Well, that was a good shot anyway, said Williams. On Power asking him which shot he meant, Williams answered, the shot that all this disturbance is about. This statement, when he was in the witness box at the assizes, Williams denied. But at the same time, he readily admitted that he had told a fair lot of fairy tales to the police. He certainly had. As to the rope which he had so carelessly disposed of and the revolver which, after breaking into two pieces, he had buried in the shingle just by the parade, where so many people passed, one can hardly pretend to understand William's conduct, especially when he could, by going down to the beach to the edge of the water, have thrown the things into the sea, and at least have had a much better chance of their non-discovery. Little by little it was shown that Williams had come to Eastbourne from London with Florence Seymour, but he had been previously at Bournemouth, where he had bought a soft trilby hat. In his haste to escape, he had left this hat in South Cliff Avenue, but it was characteristic of his record that he was prepared for such an emergency as this, and having lost his ordinary headdress, he had in his pocket a cap so that he could put it on his head and thus throw off the scent any person who might have been prepared to say that he or she had seen a hatless man. The ownership by Williams of this particular hat was proved beyond possible doubt, and it became, therefore, a valuable link in the chain of evidence. Williams and Florence Seymour passed as man and wife, and the young woman was expecting to become a mother. Williams, who was constantly needing money, got it by systematic theft and burglary, and it was in carrying out this object that he came to Eastbourne and planned the visit to Southcliff Avenue, which ended in the murder of Inspector Walls. When the luggage which Florence Seymour deposited at Victoria Station was examined, it was found to contain a leather belt with a holster attached, a false mustache, and photographs of Williams and Florence Seymour, as well as a large number of tools such as a skillful burglar would use. In Williams' luggage were found a number of pawn tickets which clearly connected him with big jewel robberies. The trial took place at the Assizes at Lewes before Mr. Justice Chanel on December 12th, 13th, and 14th, 1912. On the 14th, which was Saturday, Williams, who had given evidence on his own behalf and was in the witness box for three hours, was found guilty, the jury being only a few minutes in arriving at their verdict, and he was sentenced to death. Williams had tried hard to put the murder onto a continental thief who was known as Mike, but in this and other directions he quite failed to convince the jury. He immediately lodged an appeal, and this was heard in London before the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Averstone. Mr. Justice Ridley and Mr. Justice Fillimore 
with the result that the sentence was confirmed and carried out. Williams, who was wearing a frock coat, walked firmly to the scaffold. Great efforts had been made to obtain a reprieve and to get permission for him to marry Florence Seymour, who had given birth to a child, and the question was raised in Parliament. But these attempts failed. Amongst those who thought that there was grounds for a reprieve was a well-known London clergyman, but subsequently this gentleman wrote a letter to the press in which he said, being now in full possession of the facts, I wish to bear witness to the justice and humaneness of the Home Secretary and of the police throughout the whole matter. Williams had a consistently bad record. He began stealing at the age of nine years and committed offense after offense, finally becoming a confirmed burglar and serving various terms of imprisonment. He fought in the South African War, but was afterwards deported as an undesirable. His real name was made public at the time of the execution, and it was widely stated that he was the son of a Scottish minister of religion. But as a matter of fact, his father was a lay preacher, a respectable man of, I think, the gardening class. Williams himself, who had crowded so much wrongdoing into his career, was only 29 years of age when he was hanged for the murder of Inspector Walls. End of chapter 17 The Hooded Man